0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Here's the Plan. This is our new youth-led podcast where we're working out a 10-step plan to tackle the climate and biodiversity crises. I'm James Miller.
1: And I'm Bella Lack. And this week, we're going to be diving into the big, messy and controversial topic of carbon credits. If you book a flight and a box pops up saying offset your emissions, you're buying a carbon credit. If you see a business that claims to be carbon neutral, they're almost certainly using carbon credits. An incredibly divisive issue in the environmental movement today, but a really, really important one to discuss.
0: Our guest is Professor Anil Madhavapedi, who is a professor of planetary computing at the University of Cambridge and also the director of the Cambridge Centre for Carbon Credits. He and his team of researchers are trying to fix a certain kind of carbon credit, avoided deforestation credits. In the hope that that's going to allow a lot of money to be directed towards protecting rainforests all around the world. Anil and I actually recorded this one together in person in Cambridge, and Bella joined over Zoom. It was a really fun and interesting conversation, so I hope you all enjoy it. Hello, Anil. Thanks so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to have you here. And one thing that Bella and I have decided to do with this podcast is start with a slightly unrelated but really fun icebreaker to kick off each podcast. Sounds good. And what we decided for this episode was we'd love to ask you what you wanted to be as your first idea for a career. What did you want to do when you were a child? I wanted to be a
2: a NASA engineer. So I really, really, really wanted to go to Saturn because I saw the rings from the telescope and uh, I imagined that it'd be really cool just to go up there and surf around the rings. So I did become a NASA engineer. Uh, It was my first job out of university. We sent a probe to Mars and it crashed almost immediately. So I quit and then I went off to go
0: back to study. And I no longer want to be a NASA engineer, but I do still want to go to Saturn. That's a far cooler answer than I was... Yeah. Yeah, I wanted to be half Batman, half Superman, half Doctor. I want to be that now too. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't achieve that dream, or at least not yet. You're on your way. But you wanted to be a vet.
1: Yeah, so I think it was vet for as far as I can remember. I remember having toys and kind of performing surgeries on them. And then when I was about probably 14, 15, I got really interested in the climate crisis, the environmental crisis. And suddenly I thought I want to be kind of investigating, asking questions, learning more, doing things. So now I'm thinking journalism, but we'll see where that goes. But this is the path to that, I think. And we have loads of questions to ask you. Yeah,
0: I guess what what we'd love to talk to you about today, Enel, is deforestation. It's a really big topic and it's one that I think a lot of people can find quite overwhelming. What is the scale of the problem that we face when it comes to deforestation and what kind of timescales do we have left to act under? So one of
2: the first things that people think about uh, when you think about the climate crisis are not the forests. We think about all the gases being pumped into the air. This is the the big kind of uh, emissions crisis we have right now. Uh, But there's actually two other major world crises happening simultaneously, along with the CO2 emissions crisis. The first one is a biodiversity crisis. That is, the the variety of animals and plants in the world are decreasing at, at an alarming rate. And then the third crisis is something called desertification, where we're losing access to water and there's droughts all over the world. Now, it turns out that the little bit of terrestrial land that has intersectionality across all three of these crises is the tropical rainforest region, the equatorial region of forests around the world. Because there's this huge amount of forest uh, covering that part of the world. They have this something like two thirds of the world's terrestrial biodiversity in those rainforests. And they're incredible against staving off droughts. So if we wanted to tackle any one of these crises, it's daunting. But if we can protect the tropical rainforest, we have a chance to make a positive impact on all three of them. Now, the bad news is that tropical rainforests are disappearing at around half a percent a year. No one is deliberately cutting down tropical rainforests because they want to see them gone. It's
0: because it's a consequence of other anthropogenic activity that we're doing primarily from the West. Is this coming despite some level of attempted international action from governments? Why is it that we're failing to get a grip on this problem?
2: Yeah, it's a really good question. When you look at it in paper, it seems so easy to solve this problem, right? Just make it illegal to cut down rainforests and then uh, we can go off and stop CO2 emissions separately. The reality, of course, is that the world is really interconnected these days. So there's supply chains from growing consumer demand for all kinds of goods that mean that land has to come from somewhere. And so if you look at the land use maps of the world over the last 40 years, a vast amount of it has turned into agricultural land from other uses. And usually those former uses were some kind of wild, wild land of some kind, either forests or grasslands or whatever. And so there's a lot of political pressure to make sure that uh, there is cheap and easy access to land. And there's been a lot of political swings in the last few decades that have meant it's really hard to have a consistent policy where you can protect land. It only takes one government in power enabling a clear-cut policy. And then suddenly, before you know it, it's five or 10 years have passed. And then it, perhaps a new government comes in, but that old growth forest will take hundreds and hundreds of years to to regenerate. So Brazil is a great example where under Lula, the president minus two, there was a really good attempt at zero deforestation in the Brazilian Amazon. Under Bolsonaro, it dramatically increased at, at rates that have just never been seen before. The good news is that Lula just won again but we cannot undo the damage that was done under Bolsonaro's reign in the last term.
1: Hearing really you speak about Brazil, I was thinking about, I think it was 2020 when we were all talking about the Amazon fires and social media was a light, excuse upon pun, but a light with just people fuming about what was happening in the Amazon, about Bolsonaro, about Brazil. So many British people who I don't think recognise the scale of deforestation that's happened here. And I know we need to point our fingers at People in power abroad. But do you think we're not focusing on the same level on our own biodiversity?
2: It's a good question. First of all, I don't think we should necessarily blame the Brazilian people for voting for Bolsonaro, because ultimately, Brazil is a poor country that has to make money to uh, have shared prosperity among the people of Brazil. And I very much blame the international community for not channeling enough finance towards Brazil in order to justify the value that we all ascribe to the forest internationally, such that Brazil can essentially make loads of money from having it there. Otherwise, it just becomes a drain of their resources for the Brazilians, and uh, they see no benefit. I'm Irish, and Ireland is one of the most nature-starved countries in the world when you think about classical Gaelic witching hours and so on, that all of those are because they're set in temperate rainforests, where there's lots of mosses and bryophytes and epiphytes and things growing in all kinds of twisted directions. And those were the type of forests that used to cover the west coast of Ireland for for many, many centuries. These days, with overgrazing uh, and over farming, the popular view of Ireland is uh, rolling green hills. They're beautiful, but they make me really sad from a biodiversity perspective. They don't have anything like the level of density that we used to have and that we could have if we bring the temporary
0: rainforest back. Now, coming back to what you just said on finance, because I think this is a really critical issue. There's going to be a lot of discussions about how richer countries can compensate countries that are being more affected by climate change and compensate the emissions that they've contributed historically to make that happen. And we're seeing a real problem internationally in terms of wealthier developed countries failing to transfer enough money to developing countries, do you think that governments are going to live up to those promises and the transfer of wealth they should commit to? Or do you think that we need to step in and supplement that?
2: At COP26, there was a pledge to halt deforestation by 2030. There's been, I must say, very little action towards that concretely, uh, in terms of real policies that will slam down across the world to make sure that forests really are generally preserved. The rate of deforestation has increased markedly during the pandemic. Things are getting worse at a faster rate. So it's hard to see how we can suddenly halt deforestation by 2030. And so I think one of the the big tools to affect the way the governments work is by private businesses and, and generally the industrial sector stepping up and trying to pour finance into zero deforestation policies. And so these are A variety of approaches, one of them, for example, are zero deforestation commitments and supply chains that say that we will not use any products that have been made as a result of deforestation somewhere, and they have to track all of their very complex modern supply chains. And the other one is by a mechanism known as carbon credits. And what carbon credits are, is that anytime a business has some necessary emissions that they have to do in order to perform their actual service, we can find an action that has... An equivalent climate benefit to the climate damage that was caused by that action. So, for example, if we decide to go off and fly to California for a conference, then we can measure the amount of CO2 and contrails and the damage caused by that flight and then purchase, for example, a bit of rainforest preservation action somewhere in the, in the equatorial belt. And that will in turn drive finance from the global north to the global south in order to make sure that we are ascribing value to those forests because we do have global value because there's a huge amount of carbon locked up in those and co-benefits such as biodiversity. And so we can then apply a voluntary tax on our actions in the north in order to help protect those. And then as this market grows, this voluntary carbon market is known, the idea is that governments will see that businesses are self-regulating towards a course of action that is helping to protect the rainforests. And then the governments can legislate to get the remainder uh, in line and make sure that everyone is is obeying the same rules. So this way, governments don't have to figure out how to avoid disrupting their own industries. Industries can reconfigure themselves to make sure that they measure their own damage. They continue to decarbonize the bulk of their emissions. They purchase offsets in order to stop the residual necessary emissions. And then they provide an interface for governments to actually help uh, make sure that happens.
1: I think if you say the word offset in the room of environmentalists, it's bound to kind of divide and rile them up unlike any other word. Totally. Can you elaborate on why it's so controversial in the environmental world?
2: Absolutely. So it's controversial for good reason because there's very simple math that we have to do when it comes to any kind of carbon offsetting. If you cause some damage, you have to have a good, accurate and conservative estimate about how much CO2 has gone into the atmosphere and how much methane. So in this case, CO2 lasts for about 250 years or so in the atmosphere. So it causes a huge amount of multiplicative warming damage over the years. And then you have to say, well, I have to make sure that the climate benefit of an offset that I'm claiming matches that. And 99.999% of the time, our estimates of the damage we cause is too low. And the amount of benefit that we're claiming from a carbon offset project is also way too high because the projects might not be real. There's no way to verify that they're actually doing what they claim. They might be not very permanent because, for example, if you start a tree planting project and the trees die after uh, two or three years, because after the initial project was started, there wasn't enough attention paid or it was the wrong kind of trees, many things can go wrong, then that is not a valid carbon offset because it has not had any climate benefit. And then the final thing is something called leakage, where we can claim to purchase uh, a bit of climate positive action somewhere. But if that just results in other negative externality happening somewhere else out of sight, then uh, we still have no global benefit. So for example, if you pay someone to avoid deforesting a plot of land and they simply deforest something next door. And that's called local leakage and there's no global benefit. And so we need an edge in order to make carbon offsetting and the whole mechanism much more robust. We need to ha- figure out how to verify these things. We need to figure out how to measure the benefits and the damage more accurately. Uh, and we need more transparency because we need to call out the bad actors who are claiming and greenwashing because they said they're, they fully offset their emissions, but they haven't. And we have to make sure that they're named and shamed and do the right thing.
0: Right, so I see. We have the solution in nature-based climate solutions in protecting these rainforests, which can prevent a whole lot of carbon dioxide from being released. Mm -hmm. But as you've outlined, we have a lot of problems at the moment in the way that they're measured and the fact that we can't trust that these solutions are doing as much as we need them to. And that's preventing a lot of the money that could be channeled towards them from being channeled towards them in reality. And it means that often when people are using them, they're not using them to effectively offset their own emissions. And so that's causing problems. So what do we do? (laughs) How do we fix that? Well, there is some good news. In the last 40 or 50 years, we've been launching loads of satellites
2: into space. And these satellites are full of sensors that help observe the planet at a global level. So in about 1984 was the first year that the Landsat series of satellites were launched by NASA. And Landsat is a multispectral satellite, so it takes kind of optical and a few kind of near optical wavelength pictures of of Earth. And this means that we've got decades and decades worth of snapshots of the planet that we can use to figure out, first of all, where the important bits of land are, what is happening from an objective perspective, you know, without having to send people into the rainforest and actually figure out if they're they're being uh, degraded or not. But then in addition to just looking at something at a shallow level, there's been some even more advanced satellites launched that are even more exotic. There's something called JEDI. And JEDI was set up by a Star Wars fan, essentially a massive LiDAR, the sort of thing you get in a self-driving car, mounted on the International Space Station. And the International Space Station does this nice east-west orbit. And what it does, is it lets us estimate more than just the fact that there's a tree there. It also lets us estimate the height of the canopy. And so we can combine a lot of these, these satellites and all the different kinds of forms of data they are getting us to form really accurate and ongoingly updated views on where the forests are, how many trees there are, what sorts of trees there are, and generally what the health of those forests are. And so this means that we can start to bring around transparency because we can say that if someone is making a claim about, for example, rainforest preservation, then we can take their claims and then we can independently verify them and assess them against other equivalent parts of the world as well. And so this gives us for the first time, I think, a global footing in order to compare carbon offset projects. So if we can just objectively count the trees and measure their health, then we can start to be much, much uh, more accurate about first of all, pricing how much these things should cost, but also measuring the climate benefit. And, And doing so in such a way that doesn't require each individual purchaser of carbon offsets to worry about these things, one team of scientists can crunch through the satellite data and pro- freely provide all of the data to all of the countries worldwide, and then use that as a, as a basis by which we can, we can make
0: these assessments. I can see how, if you're doing that kind of measurement on a patch of land that's being reforested, you can see the impact that's happening. You can see that the trees are growing, and you can imagine that that's locking way more carbon. Mm-hmm. But when you have a pre-existing area of forest that you're trying to protect with money, the situation's different, isn't it? You've got to see whether or not the money that you're pouring in is actually making a difference. You don't know whether or not that forest would have been protected anyway. How can we know that? That's a really good
2: question. So let's say we've got a huge amount of acreage of tropical rainforest. Most of that rainforest is not in danger being cut down. It's only the edges of the rainforest and places where there's roads and access by river and so on. We don't want to have to pay uh, to protect everything because so that would be really expensive. We'd rather focus our attention on the endangered parts of the rainforest. This is a concept known as additionality, which is can we measure how much the addition of finance would have changed the course of the life cycle of this, this part of the forest? Versus if we hadn't put that money in, if we hadn't provided some alternative livelihoods and so on. And so there's a very, very simple way we can measure this using satellites. So let's say we have got a patch of rainforest, for example, in the Tambopata River in Peru. And then what we're going to do is say, well, we know from the satellites what the sort of physical characteristics of this area is. We know its elevation, we know its slope, we know its distance from rivers, we know the composition of species of trees there. But then we also know the distance from roads, the distance from rivers, the things that will make it more vulnerable to deforestation. And then all we have to do is to find a counterfactual. That is, can we find an area of forest that is as physically similar to this part that we're looking at, but that is quite far away? And so this way you can separate out what would be the natural progression of this forest by looking at that remote part of the forest, which is otherwise as physically similar as we can get to the one by the river, And then you use the satellites to measure what actually happened in the area by the river. And so the difference between those two is the additionality. And so this way you can start to build these differential analyses across a baseline, which is the natural progression of the forest versus what has happened because of human intervention.
1: We're talking about the environmental movement in a way that kind of perpetuates the thing that got us into this problem in the first place, which is, you know, driven by consumption, by financial flows. I know it's slightly more philosophical. It's a bit more of a personal one. But what do you think about trying to get to a place where the environmental movement is driven, not completely by financial flows, but more by it comes back again to can we rely on people's goodwill? And you think, no, I also agree that there are always going to be people who put profit over planet.
2: Gosh, that's the question at the heart of everything we're doing, isn't it? Because we really want to figure out how we can get society's norms to a point where environmentalism is normal and it's abnormal to do things that contribute towards the devastation of the planet. There is good news in history, though. For example, the the Montreal Protocol in the 80s led to an agreement to not use CFCs in order to prevent the hole in the ozone layer from growing. And that is one of the most successful international treaties, I think, in history, because it did actually, over the course of decades, lead to a change in behavior. And then the ozone layer is, in fact, healing. It'll take a few more decades, but it's, it's generally getting a heck of a lot better than it is. And we're not all getting skin cancer as a result. So similarly, when it comes to identifying what is causing these natural environments to be destroyed, we have made advances. So Professor Rachel Garrett, who just joined uh, Cambridge here, published a paper about the supply chains that lead to deforestation. And she identified five products that lead to the majority of deforestation. So cattle, uh, cocoa, coffee, soya, and palm oil. And so if you keep track of those things, then actually you've made a huge amount of progress towards making sure that the stuff that you consume isn't driven by deforestation of tropical rainforests. We just didn't have that information before, and we do now. And then there's growing awareness. There's more and more vegetarianism. A lot of people are just avoiding red meat, for example. There is progress, arguably not as fast as we needed to be, but I think more and more people are aware of the fact that their actions here in the global north might be causing damage, and they want to figure out what they can do.
0: I think... This issue that we keep coming back to of when we want to conserve these places, do we act through moral compulsion or do we try and incentivize it financially? I think it's really interesting. And I've heard the African idiom it's like, what is it? Hungry stomachs have no ears. I, I think there's a lot of truth in that. And when people are struggling to meet their basic needs, not only does it kind of feel quite patronizing to tell them that they have a moral obligation to protect these places, but also it's just, not going to be effective in many cases. But on the other hand, if you are paying people to protect these places through payments for ecosystem services, through carbon credits, I can see how that might be less permanent in some ways. You know, what happens when these payment schemes stop? Could the forest just be cut down and you lose all of that carbon that's been locked away?
2: That's a really good question. So the permanence of these interventions is at the heart of how you design a good carbon credit project. So whenever you're coming up with these projects, remember, we're not just often directly paying people to avoid cutting down the forest. We're trying to provide alternative livelihoods in the local regions that will provide perhaps a slightly less profitable way of making a living versus doing a clear cut, But there is still a viable way of of surviving. For example, in the Golo Rainforest, they do mixed forestry cocoa growth instead of doing clear cuts of the Golo Rainforest. And the chocolate uh, doesn't sell for quite as much as, as palm oil, but it's still a pretty good living. And then carbon credits are brought in to tip the scales. So they say that, well, if we can provide just that additional finance to say, well, why is cocoa slightly less than palm oil? And can we just pay you a little bit more in order to make it more profitable than palm oil? And so these kind of projects constructed like that, where you have local livelihoods in mind, you give them alternatives, and then you use carbon credits to shore up just the difference. So you're not kind of trying to pay for the whole thing. And this in turn means that more money is available for more of these kind of tipping points around the world. And the massively positive benefit of setting up local industries is that those industries tend to then provide more permanent livelihoods across community benefits and general shared prosperity. So for example, if you go to the RSPB site, you can buy really nice chocolate from the Gola rainforest. That is going towards building an industry in Gola that will then result in the local communities avoiding cutting down the rainforest. And that is a kind of a gold standard of project design. So directly paying to protect land is not often the right thing to do. One thing to keep in mind is whenever you buy a carbon offset, you have to keep an eye on what percentage of that money is going towards the local population. And often it can be less than 1% of, of the carbon offset you purchase. purchased. Local livelihoods has got to be one of the key metrics around an effective carbon credit. If you purchased a, a highly packaged carbon credit, where 99% of the money is going towards intermediate brokers or banks, then there, it's a very ineffective one. So local livelihood is, in addition to additionality and leakage and permanence, And biodiversity, impact, one of the key metrics that we look at, because ultimately, if we don't bring shared prosperity to the global south, then there's kind of
0: no point saving the rainforest because we'll never be able to hold it off for long enough to protect them. We've been through additionality, how you calculate that. You've you've talked about some of the ways that we can try to ensure more permanence in these projects. But how on earth do you deal with that problem of leakage? How do you know when you start a project that it's displacing harm elsewhere? Because it could be anywhere in the world, couldn't it? There's a big project called Trace set up in,
2: in Stockholm that is tracking the world supply chain so you can keep an eye on where the global flows of products are. And this is a remarkably hard thing to do, but they've used that to determine, for example, the vast amount of deforestation in the world is, is due to agricultural demand. And they just had a paper on that uh, just a few months ago that really covered and uncovered all of the, the various flows to, to give us a good sense of that. And so global leakage ultimately comes down to reducing demand for something. If you can't reduce the demand for a product, then it's got to come from somewhere. And that usually results in some kind of global leakage. For local leakage that is in the area where the project is happening, you've got to look into foregone production. You've got to say, well, if we haven't covered that opportunity cost fully, then someone else there will come and take up that opportunity. And so that just means paying more to the local people in order to make sure that we can accurately account for what they might have otherwise have done. Because remember, that's how we make our decisions, right? You don't make a decision saying, I'm going to have uh, this particular thing to eat right now. You're going to say, well, the opportunity cost of that is that I can't do something else right now. I can't eat something else or I can't go for a run or whatever. We always make these decisions based on what we couldn't otherwise do. And so you've got to apply the same the same rule when you start tackling leakage.
1: Could I hone in on kind of two phrases you said in the last five minutes or so? One was saving rainforest and one was, tipping points. And I think both of them suggest that there's this binary kind of we save the earth or we don't. And I know so many scientists in the IPCC report, there's talk about tipping points about, I think, 10 years to prevent catastrophic climate change. Do you think when we're talking about biodiversity loss, about carbon credits, that we should have this view of a certain urgency? There's a time frame that we need to act within or a less binary approach to it.
2: It's definitely very important to avoid climate exhaustion where you know you think there's nothing we do will will make a difference and therefore don't bother doing anything that is a real danger and so we want to always highlight the fact that any action is good action and making progress towards a goal is ultimately what we do as a species but generally speaking the urgency for me comes from biodiversity every time you see a bit of old growth forest being cut down it's just a tragedy because there's a local story there that can never be reproduced again for our lifetimes and for many many lifetimes more and we never quite know what we've lost and that feels urgent just because there's so many stories that could have been told, so many Edinburgh documentaries about weird and wonderful things that just will never happen because we're losing all of these species. Can I change my answer in the beginning? When I grew up, I wanted to be David Attenborough as well. Oh, wow. Well, and I still want to be David Attenborough when I grow up.
1: Didn't we all? I actually, I don't know if James knows this, but I found David Attenborough's address when I was younger. He lives in London. I would take a photo of myself holding ants and things like that, snails, and send him photos. And he actually replied to these photos because mm-hmm. He replies to any kid under 12 because he feels like he has an obligation to kind of nurture the next generation. So to anyone under 12 who wants to go and put photos of themselves through his door, actually, maybe don't. I think he has better things
0: I'm going to find pictures myself when I was uh, under 12. I'll, I'll get my mom to send me some. Well, I think if there's anyone under 12 who's lasted this long into an episode about carbon credits and deforestation, <laughs> I think we should point them in David's direction. Absolutely.
1: I want to be them when I'm older. <laughs>
0: We are talking about targets and whether or not we should use specific binary targets. There's one target that's coming up in the pipeline for biodiversity, and that's the 30 by 30 target, protecting 30% of our planet's terrestrial ecosystems by 2030. And I know that when I was at COP26, for example, I encountered a lot of resistance to that. Mm. I was not anticipating it at all from especially indigenous groups. There was a real concern that this might lead to a lot of land grabbing from local and Indigenous people, as it has in the past. Do you think that that fear is warranted? And do you think that if we were to try and expand the amount of land under protection as rapidly as this target points towards, that we can do that while safeguarding Indigenous rights?
2: I think their concerns are really, really valid. We've actually even just even seen this in the UK during the pandemic. Lots and lots of land just got purchased in the countryside. And generally, the the price of land has been going up in a way that didn't really happen before people realized they could leave cities. And for indigenous people, this is a huge danger because they have an existing way of life. And if someone comes along and purchases this land and tells them they simply cannot do what they were doing before, then this destroys their way of life. And so the right answer is to figure out how do we preserve these lands in harmony with the people living there at the moment and provide the right financing that is sympathetic to their existing practices, which the vast majority of them are highly, highly complementary to any kind of land preservation efforts or biodiversity efforts. In general, obviously, the indigenous people know much more about how to preserve their local environments than anyone coming from the outside will. And so I think what we should be doing for movements like this is to provide the mechanization and the intelligence for them to help them to improve and nurture their land. For example, uh, making sure these bits of satellite information are available accessibly, equitably to everyone so that they can use them to affect their local decision-making and their farming intelligence, for example. We also then have to make sure that any financing we do is not just coming in with impositions, but it's, it's a cooperative set of agreements so they can all work together. There's just this really narrow road to success. It's a balancing act between the global needs and the local needs of all, all the people who are living in their moment. And theres it's just not going to be an easy answer. We have to be constantly listening to both sides in order to figure out exactly where this balance is going to be. And ultimately, it's cooperation is going to win this, not antagonism. If we get it wrong, it'll just be another form of colonialism going into the equatorial belt.
1: And do you think we can dig ourselves out of this hole? I think it's the ultimate question, because if we followed this roadmap you provided for us, could we in say 20, 30 years be in a better place than we are today?
2: Absolutely. I I love being human. <laughs> and, you know, I I love the human condition because usually when we're in trouble, we tend to innovate and we tend to think about it. It might take us a little bit longer than you might otherwise have, have hoped. But if you look at the macro drops in emissions, for example, we've avoided some of the more catastrophic things that might've happened a few decades ago. The four, 4.5 degree pathways are now largely not viewed as being likely and the two point the mid two degree rises are viewed as likely obviously we want to hold to 1.5 but we are shifting the direction of this enormous boulder that that, that is humanity in the right direction i have surrounded myself by people who believe that we can succeed i do think you need an optimism a bubble in order to to really take the risks to make this thing work so our research burdens are all highly risky most science fails it's just the nature of science but it just takes one of them to succeed. And because we have these planetary-scale platforms, that means we can deploy these things almost instantaneously all over the world by you know, using things like the internet and, and satellites and stuff to, to make it all scale. That gives me hope that it just takes one of these efforts to succeed. And then suddenly we'll have more and more intelligence globally. And then all of the billions of people
0: can use these in order to help us get to our goals. I think to finish off, we'd like to ask you if there's one thing that you'd like governments to do, one thing you'd like businesses to do, and one thing you'd like people to do, what would those three things be? What are the other pieces of the puzzle that we need to fit in?
2: It's a good question. So first of all, governments need to mandate that we have to measure our residual emissions accurately. They need to provide global standards by which we can agree on how much damage we're doing. And then businesses need to decarbonize massively aggressively. So they need to essentially all agree on how to cut 80% of their emissions. And this is this is something where no one business wants to move first because you don't want to have a competitive disadvantage. And so they just need to figure out how to make that happen. And then for people, we need to be, we need to spend a certain percentage of our day educating ourselves about where the most high impact behavioral changes are. Ultimately, we all have to make consumer decisions that drop demand for products that are destroying the planet. So this could be decluttering could be changing your your eating habits it doesn't have to be extreme but it has to be distinct and always heading towards reducing our carbon usage so if you combine all these things and there was a magic wand to help make them all happen simultaneously we would be out of this mess almost immediately but the good thing is that these things are all happening in these
0: sectors and i hope that we can make that just accelerate over the next few years wonderful well thank you so much Neil, for joining us it was a really really lovely conversation and we both learned so much from it
2: I had a great time. I could talk about this for hours. Thank you very much.
1: So James, you met Anil a few years ago, and he then later employed you. So you've obviously worked closely together. You suggested this episode topic. Was this what you expected? And did you learn anything new or did you already know all of this?
0: I'll be honest, a lot of the the science side of things that Anil brought up in that conversation, I did already know because um, I worked with him on it a bit over the summer. But his perspectives on how that research fits into the overall landscape of carbon credits and his opinions on what need to change overall in the market, those are things that I had never really had the opportunity to talk with him about in detail. And that was really interesting for me. But I'm also, I'm interested in what you thought of it, because I think you and me both as climate activists, we're not naturally coming from a group of people who would generally feel very warm towards the ideas of, of carbon credits and offsets.
1: I think for a long time I've associated offsetting with corporations being a bit apathetic. And to me, offsetting seemed like a bit of a lazy route out. But in the long term, offsetting can be seen as a mechanism to actually scale up carbon drawdown and lots of different innovative mechanisms which we need to actually remove emissions from the atmosphere. Because, you know, we've got to a place now where we've caused so much damage. This isn't just about stopping. This is about removal
0: you're totally right. I think the all the IPCC scenarios for 1.5 degrees involve a degree of carbon removal from the atmosphere. And so I think there's very valid room for debate as to whether or not carbon credits are the way to finance that removal. But if you're not allowing carbon credits and you don't support it, we need to think about how we're going to get sufficient money into those solutions, which might be quite difficult.
1: The whole idea of offsetting as a concept, I think it leads to to accusations of greenwashing. So in a way, it can actually be more harmful because it ends in distrust. So we have to acknowledge the issues so that we can try and overcome them.
0: Yeah, no, exactly. In this, it's all about trust. And it's reasonable for activists in the environmental movement, as is the case right now, to have absolutely no trust in carbon credits at all, because it's, it's true that right now, the market is in a completely abysmal place the vast majority of these carbon credits aren't doing what they say they do. They're not protecting as much carbon as, as they say they are. And it's not the case that, you know, they're getting the figures slightly off. Sometimes the figures that they're saying are orders of magnitude higher than the actual amount of carbon dioxide that's being stored.
1: I think therefore it comes back to us as well, as well as the corporations, but Tailoring it to the listeners to demand a strengthening of quality assurance to make sure that the schemes offered are trustworthy and won't result in people completely going off the whole idea itself.
0: That's what Anil's trying to fight in his corner with with the Cambridge Centre for Carbon Credits. And there's also a body called the ICBCM, the Integrity Council for the Voluntary Carbon Market.
1: ICBCM.
0: ICBCM because there's this market has no government regulation at all this body is all that's standing to try and impose standards in some kind of centralized way and they've just brought out a new set of what they call the core carbon principles which is basically setting a minimum baseline for the quality that a carbon credit will need to achieve to be validated by them as a good quality carbon credit and it's thought that 80% of the carbon credits on the market at the moment Will not meet that standard. That may be a real game changer. And I think the other really important aspect to this is, as you say, it's making sure that companies aren't using offsets and carbon credits as a way to detract from the real decarbonization that they need to do to eliminate emissions from within their operations and their supply chain. If we can make sure that carbon credits don't substitute for that, then that will eliminate a lot of that problem of greenwashing. And there's an interesting report that was released by a company called Silvera that did a study that looked across, I think it was 102 different companies across a whole range of different sectors. And they found that the companies that tended to buy carbon credits, they were reducing their real emissions, their direct emissions and their energy consumption emissions by an average of 6.2% every year. And the companies in the study that didn't buy carbon credits, they were only reducing their real emissions by 3.4% every year. So the implications of this study, and I haven't looked into it in any detail, to be honest, but the implications of the study suggest that actually a lot of those companies that are buying a lot of carbon offsets aren't taking any less climate action. In fact, they're, they're doing far better and they're being more ambitious in their real decarbonization.
1: That's really, it's really great to hear because it defeats so many preconceptions that people have.
0: Yeah, I'm interested to see what comments we get after this one, Bella.
1: Mm. Do you think it will be divisive?
0: Yeah, I'm looking forward to being cancelled by the environmental movement. (laughs) (laughs) But no, I think genuinely, if anyone's listening to this and has some comments and feedback and wants to argue against some of the stuff that we've said, I think we would really, really welcome that. I think this is all about opening up a more open discussion on what's a hugely controversial topic that's often discussed without any nuance. Ultimately, this voluntary carbon market, I think there's no controversy about the fact that at the moment it's it's pretty awful. I think the controversy is as to whether or not we can fix it, whether it's redeemable. And that's something that we need to talk about very, very quickly because this market is starting to scale very rapidly.
1: So James, I think we should get started on what people can do because the topic is complex. The episode has been long, but there are quite a few concrete things that people can take away and do.
0: Exactly. So I think a good way to start for this, if you're looking at a business and you're thinking, are they doing the right thing? There's um, a body called the Science-Based Targets Initiative that you can get companies to sign up to. And that sets targets for that real decarbonization that they need to do in their supply chain. And there's also another body called the Voluntary Carbon Market Integrity Initiative that's very much doing the same thing. It's setting out principles for how much companies should decarbonize in the real world before they should get carbon credits. It's setting out principles for using carbon credits in a robust and ethical way. So get companies to sign up to that initiative, to abide by those principles before they start to use carbon credits.
1: And I think. Talking about principles, an important thing to remember for individuals is that buying flights and offsetting for those flights doesn't necessarily work. And we need to face the fact, like with our last episode, where we said recycling should be the second, third step we take. Offsetting shouldn't be the first thing we turn to. It should be, first of all, reducing, as always. And then if it's necessary, there is offsetting as as an option to reduce your impact.
0: Exactly. And when you do look for those offsets, don't buy an offset I would say that is offered by the flight companies themselves because you see they're so cheap i think it's pretty much universally true with flight offsets that they won't do what they say they will do in fact it would be far better to go onto a carbon marketplace yourself look for carbon credits that have been verified do your research find these projects yourself and invest in one that you think is doing a lot of good in the world We shouldn't look with a carbon tunnel vision. We should also be looking at what projects take good care of people on the ground and also ones that benefit biodiversity as well.
1: And I really love the idea that often we talk about the division between nature and climate, but when we're talking about um, carbon offsetting, nature-based solutions can actually be used as a mechanism for carbon offsetting. So I love that integration um, of the two.
0: Definitely, definitely. So I think it's just like a general summary key takeaway, I would say, for carbon credits, is that it would be great if everyone could learn about these. And before doing any campaigning, any advocacy surrounding it, make sure you know what you want. Because sometimes these issues are complicated. And this is definitely one of them.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think you can tell that by the way, we haven't come to a conclusion on whether offsetting is good or bad. And very rarely can you in the environmental movement come to a conclusion if something's good or bad. But we have discovered that if you go through the right verification processes, if you don't use it as your first option, if you use it within a patchwork of other solutions, it can be incredibly helpful. And right now, we have to do a bit of cathedral thinking and realise, yes, we don't have the exact solution but we know kind of where we want to go. And this can be one of the steps to get towards that.
0: I think so. But again, we invite your criticism as long as it's constructive and polite.
1: We love a bit of criticism.
0: Thanks so much, everyone, for listening as always. We really appreciate you tuning in. And if you've enjoyed the episode, there are a number of ways that you could support us. If you're on Spotify, if you could leave us a five-star review. If you're on Apple, what helps even more, I think than leaving a, a five-star review, although you can do that as well, is to leave us a review in words. And that helps to boost our podcast up the rankings and gets more ears on it. And finally, if you've really enjoyed it, we'd be very grateful if you wanted to tip us a small donation for producing this because we weren't paid to do this and it's taken a lot of time. And you can do that on ko with a K. The links to this and all our social media are all in the show notes below.
1: Next time on Here's the Plan, we have an interview we're really excited to share with you. We spoke to Louisa Neubauer, who, if you don't know her, is a leading figure in the youth climate movement. She helped to build up the movement in Germany, took her government to court and won, and has campaigned very heavily against the construction of new fossil fuel projects. We're speaking to her about some of the systematic sticking points that are holding us back from climate action across all sectors and how we can turn off the fossil fuel tap. Look forward to it because it's going to be a very good one
0: see you next time. Thank you. Bye.
1: Bye.